the Damon Hayhow podcast on DamonHayhow.com. Welcome to the Damon Hayhow podcast. In today's episode, I want to talk about supplements that work. And full disclosure, that title that I just gave you is extremely clickbaity because the fact of the matter is, is that supplements serve to supplement your diet. And in that way, they all work. They do supplement your diet. The thing is, is that no one's really interested and no one really spends their hard-earned money on supplements because they want something to supplement their diet, or or very, very few people do. What most people purchasing uh, sports supplements want is they want drugs, basically. They want a doping effect from their nutritional supplements. So what I want to talk about in this episode are the supplements I like that can actually give a tangible benefit that can be either seen in your physique or um, measured in your training and body composition change uh, in in a somewhat profound manner depending on what you're doing. But before we get to these supplements... We really need to understand exactly what I said before, which is that supplements are supplemental to diet. Their job is to fill in the to fill in the gaps or to load up uh, and and unbalance the diet in a way that could be favorable to what we want to achieve. Now, in terms of what we want to achieve, diet actually is not quite the panacea and the cause of radical body transformation that everybody kind of makes out that it is. The real cause of body transformation is your training. Now, if you train at tiddlywinks or badminton or underwater polo or something like that, then you'll get hopefully good at tiddlywinks or underwater polo or whatever it is that you're training for. But that does not mean that you're going to get an impressive physique, irrespective of what diet you follow. So the the, the thing that matters more than anything else is your training. If your training is ineffective or misdirected, you've failed. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people out there with absolutely amazing genetics who are able to train atrociously badly, and by some universal accident, they wind up developing absolutely fabulous physiques. This is not a statement uh, or reflection of their genius. This is just dumb, blind luck. And and fortunately, the fact is, is that if you go to the gym and you lift some weights, then you would hope that over some amount of time, you would wind up with more muscle and more strength than you had started with. To lift weights and not gain any muscle or, or strength is really quite an achievement, even though a lot of people are achieving exactly that you know, astonishing levels of failure. But moving on, diet is supplemental to training. That's how it needs to be looked at. You need to eat to support the training that you were doing at the time and the training and and whatever it is that training is trying to achieve. Supplements are then supplemental to the diet, which is supplemental to the training. The point being that supplements are not the start point. And I need to say this because there are lots of people going into supplement shops and purchasing supplements before they've even spoken about their their diet and training. I know this. I used to own and operate a supplement store, and I watched it get worse and worse over the years. So this is how a lot of people are approaching the problem. Supplements do not fix a crappy diet, and supplements certainly do not fix crappy training. 
get the training right, get the diet right, then you can look at some supplements. The first supplement on the list is protein powder. And it is the ultimate of all nutritional supplements. It's the only supplement that I've used for the entire time that I've been weight training. And I can say does make a sizable difference. Now, when I say a sizable difference, what I'm talking about is protein powder can help you uh, shift the balance of your diet at different calorie levels more toward protein and away from and therefore proportionately away from carbohydrates and fats. It gives you more options. It is possible to have a 50% protein diet, which is as, as high as I believe protein should ever go in any diet. Um, and again, that depends on the calorie level too. But it's possible it's it's possible to get to fifty percent of of calories from whole food protein sources, meat, chicken, eggs, etc. The problem is is that it seems to take a real toll on anyone eating any more than you know thirty five hundred calories per day. I myself eat four thousand calories per day just to maintain uh, what what size I have left. and Protein powder is a cheap and convenient way of getting in a good 140 grams of that in my current diet that would be far more expensive, far more time-consuming, and far more difficult to consume and digest each day if I was getting it all from meat and eggs and chicken and, and, and whole foods. What I've found over the years with both myself and and basically everyone that I've worked with, particularly on very high-protein diets, is that uh, a diet where the vast majority of the protein comes from protein powder is just atrociously bad. They generally feel gradually worse and worse over time, and performance certainly does not uh, go particularly well in the gym, and body composition doesn't seem to improve like we would like it to and certainly not like it does when compared to a diet that includes predominantly protein from whole foods but then a a nice chunk from um, protein powders similarly though a high protein diet when the when the protein content's getting up above that 35 percent up toward 50 percent mark of calories um, on on diets that are beyond 3500 calories per day when you're getting up into that uh, 350 to 500 grams of protein per day and that's that's actual grams of protein then getting that from whole foods also tends to strain the system in a very, very uncomfortable way, depending on the person. And they don't get the results that they would ordinarily get. A mix of a a protein supplement up to around about 150 grams a day of protein from protein supplements uh, with with at least two-thirds basically coming from whole foods seems to be an amazing Um, effective way of getting body composition changes at a rate and to an extent that you you can't achieve otherwise or maybe you could achieve otherwise but um, it's very very often that we'll see people actually visibly and measurably change dramatically in the first few weeks of adding a substantial amount of protein powder to a substantial uh, whole food diet um, for the positive, where there can be concurrent muscle growth with fat loss. And dieting into competitions or or just dieting to get yourself as lean and muscular as you possibly can, really focusing on getting the body fat down, that combination of protein powders with whole foods really 
does seem for a lot of people to be the the optimum way of doing it with the easy to digest protein powders supplementing the more difficult to digest whole food protein sources so having said that let's look at the actual different protein powders because obviously you've got uh, casein ways all sorts of different ways you've got albumin you've got wheat protein out there you've got your pea protein and a hundred different other types of protein now in reality over the course of a year of training and supplementing the difference is I would rank as two-fifths of stuff all. The difference between products can actually be quite dramatic. The difference between, um, uh, and, and, it's, and it's pretty common that, that a, lot of, a lot of products people find difficult to digest. They can leave their stomachs feeling very, very squeamish, um, or they go straight through them, et cetera, et cetera. What I tend to have noticed is that this isn't, this usually isn't a case of the the base ingredient. So if you get a whey protein and you have a bad reaction from it, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't have whey protein. What it tends to mean is that the product that you happen to get doesn't agree with your system. And I'm, I can't be sure of this, but there certainly seems to be a stronger relationship between the difficulty digesting protein uh, supplements and the sweeteners, colors, flavors, additive things that they put in them than there does to the raw protein source. Now, obviously, if you're gluten intolerant and you go and you have wheat protein isolate, then you're probably going to have some pretty violent, drastic problems. And similarly, if you're allergic to, uh, you know, milk in any way, shape or form, or you've got a specific casein allergy, which is is not uncommon, then you're going to have massive problems with uh, a lot of lactose and casein in your, in your protein powders. But aside from those specific instances of a disagreement, um, a, a good way to test if, if you have a particular problem is to get raw um, protein powders. Might not necessarily be the most tasty thing, but they can certainly answer a lot of questions. I've done this myself, and I've found that um, raw whey protein concentrates, even to a lower grade of around 70% protein with quite a lot of residual lactose and fat, give me absolutely no stomach upsets whatsoever. However, a lot of the whey protein products on the market, particularly the American um, or, or the cheaper protein powders on the market, give me considerable stomach issues and discomfort. So like I say, uh, don't discount entire uh, lines of products based on a bad experience. Maybe try different better quality products or different flavors or um, even, even the raw products. Uh, the difference, as I said, between a year of using casein and whey, even though we hear all these differences about digestion rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in an athlete training hard and on a, uh, a substantial whole food diet that's very, very consistent, the difference between whether they use casein or whey or whether their whey is whey concentrate or isolate or this, that, and the other thing, the difference is negligible at and that's that's overstating. It's like it's nothing. There's there's no measurable difference over the course of a year of training. Get the protein powder that digests well for you, and basically that's going to be as uh, the, the the main part of it. Now that even applies to things like the 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 vegan pea proteins and other things. These are low grade proteins. 
arguably, and I don't want to get into the greeny thing, but um, at the end of the day, it really doesn't seem to make a hell of a lot of difference. The The thing about whey being the best protein for human metabolism is apparently absolutely true, but when it really comes down to it at the end of the day, on a complete diet, like I said, that's supplemented with protein, it really doesn't seem to make much difference. Now, um, the weight gain protein powders, obviously there are big differences there because the difference between a um, what they'd classify as a muscle builder and a weight gainer and a protein powder is simply whether they've added carbohydrates. Now there are all sorts of different carbohydrates that get added to these these protein powders, um, but generally the, the major issue is the quantity, just the ratio of, of the protein to carbs. Some uh, of the products I've seen with a ratio as high as 10 part carb to one part protein. So it's really more like a uh, a sugar drink than it is. Uh, it's more like a cordial than it is a protein powder. Now these things will get you titanically fat very fast. There's no way to put a really, really effectively slow protein into a protein powder. It, it doesn't seem. Um, unless you put something in there that gums up and gives you stomach discomfort. So um, weight gainers, though, when they're used in the context of a higher calorie diet where you're trying to get the calories up there and you've measured and tested lower levels of calories with more natural whole foods, your rice and your, and your potatoes and those sorts of things, when you get to that point that you just can't stomach anymore, then Again, it's a really, really effective way when applied judiciously and measured and planned to just gain really good quality weight um, at a affordable price that is more easily digested and stomached than more natural food would be. Um, it's all very well and good for people to argue about what um, should be better but at the end of the day, when people are trying to gain weight and eat six, 7,000 calories plus per day, just getting the food down is the major task and being able to digest it. Um, I've seen people uh, fare a lot worse in their, in their health, well-being and, um, the, and their body composition results from trying to force down large quantities of good food that they just couldn't digest and benefit massively from having um, these weight gain powders and things. So I really rate them. They really help. They're a great tool in supplementing a diet. So moving on, creatine is the probably the most uh, hyped up nutritional supplement that was ever de ever developed or discovered. And mm, like most things, it's it's pretty massively overstated. Now, in a person who is following a really well structured, disciplined, consistent diet, eating high carbohydrates uh, and and trying to gain as much lean muscle as possible and measuring their body composition changes and making adjustments to the diet to keep pushing forwards, but not so aggressively that they get fat. In that situation, creatine can be quite remarkable. And it's not remarkable for its effect on muscle and strength gain like all of the you know, scientism literature might say, where it it's where I've found it to be most remarkable is in preventing fat gain and actually keeping the diet working exactly as we want it to. So to explain what I mean here is 
let's say we we take a, a person who's wanting to put on a lot of a lot of muscle size and weight so we're trying to put on say 20 30 plus kilos and we start off let's say they're relatively novicey we start off at 3000 calories and they they're gaining weight nice and slowly training well it's going good and we put the creatine in there we'll keep on adding calories and keeping the creatine in there and keep pushing the weight up and up and up by constantly adding the calories just you know as the body measures that it's taking it well so we're not gaining any fat as long as the creatine's in there we've been able to follow this process for many 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 months up to sort of getting close to 12 months um, of pretty consistent weight gain without fat gain and to anyone who's been in the body recomposition game for any time they'll know that's an incredible thing now the really incredible pattern that i started to notice though was that the person's going along really nicely just making consistent gains and then they run out of creatine and and they kind of forget to get it and it, it, let's say it takes a week and they come in for their measurements at the end of the week and all of a sudden for the first time in however long we find that the the fat's actually gone up and the the weight may be stalled or, or only went up a little bit on, on where it was the previous week and we go well that's interesting so we hold the calories where, it, where they were put the creatine back in and then the next week they're a little bit fatter again and the training hasn't really gone anywhere and and then this this pattern can, continues and, and eventually we have to go, well, okay, we, we can either keep making you fat or we can actually pull back and reset. And we have to pull back quite a way to, um, to, to arrest the, the kind of ongoing fat gain. What appears to be happening, because, you know, none of us have any idea of what's going on inside the body. A lot of people talk about being scientific and they'll say this is what happens inside the body when you take these supplements. But the fact is, none of these people have ever measured inside the body when these supplements are taken. All of these people talking about science are talking about reading what other people found. So what I'm talking about here is what I've found from measuring body composition in, in multiple, multiple people at least dozens and dozens and dozens of people and seeing a consistent pattern of creatine being added to a high carbohydrate diet that's gradually increased over time for lean muscle gain working beautifully well and then the moment that the creatine is taken out it sort of derails the train and any anybody experienced in body recomposition will know this process of making really good consistent pro progress for a period of time and then all of a sudden something going wrong and as soon as that one little thing goes wrong it is like a derailed train you can't just get back on track by doing your training and eating the food that you've been eating something breaks i don't know what it is i couldn't give you the biochemical explanation and quite frankly i don't care because this is a pattern that we see so regularly and so consistently and so predictably that when we see it again in another person we know how to respond to it and we really don't need to get technical and make up stories about exactly how it went about happening when we can't do anything about it anyway except for respond so this is this is where I find creatine to be quite remarkable. In people who train properly and they eat well with a, a good high-carbohydrate diet that still has a solid at least 30% protein 
30% of calories from protein base in there, so still very high in protein. In these people, I don't generally find that creatine has uh, huge five kilo weight gains in the first seven days and, and does all of this amazing stuff that it's purported to do. I don't find those people's strength suddenly um, leaps uh, to all new height, all new never, be seen, never seen before heights um, like it's purported to do. People who train well and eat well tend to be pretty consistent and stable. Um, yes, some people do put on a few kilos with some with the creatine going in there. Some people's skin folds go a little bit up with the water retention. This seems to be a function of the, the quality of the creatine and its digestibility, which is another hugely important factor here. The lower-grade creatines, and I, I, I've even found CreaPure to be questionable in its um, utility in myself and others. I seem to be sensitive in the stomach to it. Um, but the the lower the grade creatine, then the more um, extracellular water retention there is, meaning the, the puffier a person gets. They might put on more weight, but they'll tend to look, you know, bloated in the face and bloated in the tummy, and they'll often be bloated in the bathroom too. Um, the really bad stuff like the uh, the Masashi stuff from years ago used to just empty the guts of anyone who took just a single half teaspoon of it. So really bad creatine, really low grade creatine can give you problems if you've if you've had problems with creatine before. It's not necessarily um, the creatine itself causing the problem. Uh, the Gentech Creatine 320 is the product I've used for years and has had the, the most beneficial effect. Unfortunately, the company that was making that changed the manufacturer to China. And uh, my good friend Nick Jones, who runs Gentech, he, he said, you know, you, you can't basically put a, a, a premium product on the market with Made in China on it because people just will, will think it's garbage. So he's gone to the more expensive CreaPure, the brand name creatine that's the, supposed to be the highest grade available. And uh, I didn't find it to be anywhere near as um, beneficial as the creatine 320. So uh, I, I stored up on, on the last that he had. And hopefully I've, I've been petitioning him to get the creatine 320 back, offer it as a lower price product. And those of us in the know will, will keep using it as a better quality product than even the CreaPure is. That said, the CreaPure is, is good stuff and you should still be able to get the, the benefits that you want from it. Um, the Crea Pure brand, if it's honest, is apparently as good as it gets. So there's that. So that's that's creatine. Interesting, different from what they what they say it is, but it certainly does. I've measured it. It make profound differences to people's body composition. Next interesting supplement would be caffeine, which has obvious performance enhancing benefits, at least uh, to cognitive performance um, and, and energy levels. Now, the thing with creatine is, uh, sorry, with caffeine is, uh, again, there's a way to use it and a way to not use it. I have three double espressos per day and I do not supplement any any caffeine on top of that. Um, apparently, somewhere around about the 600 milligram per day mark is where the average person develops a physiological dependence on the creatine just to get to uh, sort of get back to baseline. Um, so when you're exceeding that 600 milligrams, apparently, that's where the, the problems start. Now, 
I've exceeded 600 milligrams a day on a consistent basis, and I can I can attest to the fact that problems do start, and you do get to that point of, uh, you know, total dependence on the caffeine, or the brain just doesn't function at all. And uh, in the worst the worst state, if you really overdo it like I did when I first got into coffee, um, you can wake up with a headache and then you have the caffeine and it just moves the headache to a different part of your head. And then you've got to go through the horrible, uh, almost drug withdrawal um, uh, program to, to get off of the damn stuff. That said, use judiciously. Um, caffeine has all sorts of wonderful apparent benefits which I can't attest to basically I really really love my coffee um, I enjoy it and it uh, it makes me jabber a little bit too much just after I've had it um, but it, it does spark the energy up now there is a limit to this when it comes to training one of the big problems one of the reasons I don't like pre-workout supplements and I'm going to be doing another podcast on the supplements I don't like which is going to be talking about pre-workouts is if you overstimulate yourself and you're you're too jumpity and excited then it becomes very very difficult to go into the gym and perform on very heavy focused exercises which by their very nature will move slowly if you're if you're doing uh, maximum squats or maximum deadlifts it doesn't matter how fast you try to push that weight up it's going to move slowly if your brain's racing too fast ahead of yourself you can think that you've been pushing on that weight for several seconds and it's not moving when in real time you actually only pushed on the weight for a few milliseconds and then you quit because your brain was just all all frazzled and written off i've seen a lot of lifters training just devastated and ruined by being overstimulated on caffeine and pre-workout supplements in particular um, but having said that the ability to focus with the right amount of caffeine um, is pretty much unparalleled especially when you're when you're when you're a busy person and you've got other distractions in your life caffeine can really help with your with your workout performance Next supplement that can be profoundly effective is alpha-lipoic acid, ALA. And this is another interesting one, and in, in it's context-specific. It's cited to be uh, an amazingly powerful antioxidant and yada, 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 do all these wonderful things. Don't know, don't care. There's nothing really profoundly noticeable about taking this supplement except when we we put a person onto a very high carbohydrate diet for the first time, say, ever. Um, a lot of people come to us, go, they want to gain weight. They've been doing the low-carb thing, so haven't been gaining weight. And we'll put them on on double, triple the calories that they've ever eaten before, and we'll fill them with carbohydrates. Now, if a person's been on a low-carbohydrate diet for an extended period, and a lot of people have, and then you suddenly put them on a high-carbohydrate diet, a lot of people find the transition very, very rough, and they'll oscillate between diabetic coma and then going completely loopy and running around before they fall into another diabetic coma as their blood sugar just bounces all over the place and the body's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Alpha-lipoic acid is near miraculous in this situation we in this limited situation where you've got a person coming off a low carbohydrate diet onto a, a high carbohydrate diet 
they're going through all of the worst side effects of the transition where they get very, very bloated, like extremely bloated, lots of water retention, the up and down energy levels that are almost unbearable. As soon as they start throwing alpha-lipoic acid in, it evens out almost immediately and almost 100%. As in the day they start, no more bloating, no energy fluctuations, feel just fine. It's really quite amazing. Um, now that doesn't mean that alpha-lipoic acid will stop you having a tummy that feels very full when you've just eaten a field of rice. What it means is that the extreme bloating and the hypo and hyperglycemic episodes just seem to level out immediately. So alpha-lipoic acid is something that in people on the, under those circumstances I tell them about and I just say, get the smallest bottle you can find. You want somewhere around two to 300 milligrams, two to three times per day, starting with your first meal. And, uh, and if, you, if you want, don't even start it at, at the start. Go on the diet. If you feel fine, don't need it. If you don't feel t- fine, start taking the alpha-lipoic acid. Take it till the bottle's used up. One to two weeks is fine, and you'll be able to come off it, and you'll be just fine. The... Uh, hype about alpha-lipoic acid being a potent insulin sensitizer. This is, of course, always coming from people who don't actually measure their insulin and have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um, Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I have absolutely no idea. The time alpha-lipoic acid is quite amazing is in this context. Uh, Sometimes some people can feel some benefit going into ketosis if if they're switching into a ketogenic diet. Um, and the alpha-lipoic acid can give a similar blunting to the worst brutality of of that diet transition. Um, But it's short-lived, and after that, there's nothing noticeable that I've seen or measured from anybody who's continued on with the ALA. Amazing supplement in its limited context use. Um, Very valuable tool in the arsenal. No good if, no, not apparently any good if uh, if you're beyond that. Vitamin C is uh, the third to last supplement I want to talk about here. Vitamin C, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's got a hell of a reputation for your immune system and fighting colds and blah, blah, blah. Some people um, certainly feel that if they're starting to, to, to come down with a cold that they take some vitamin C and they can ward it off. Uh, sometimes that seems to, in inverted commas, work and sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's, it's something that is not in the foods in my diet. So I do have vitamin C on a regular basis because I recognize it's supposedly important and um, I don't want scurvy or anything else. Um, but from a training point of view, where it can become near miraculous and drug-like is if you've done a, a brutal leg workout, for instance, and you know that the next day it's going to feel like the fairy came into your bed during the night, opened up your skin, and then just took a cheese grater to your legs. Um, Vitamin C in a big dose, sort of around about the 4,000 milligram kind of mark and one big dose post-workout can alleviate that absolute worst of the inflammation from a, a, a very, very hard workout like that quite remarkably. It, it, absolutely takes the worst edge off of the of the soreness like pretty much no other supplement out there yep just lowly vitamin c the issue is and the trick is is that it needs to be an acute 
dose. It needs to be something that the body hasn't become used to. If you're having 10,000 milligrams of vitamin C per day and then you have 4,000 milligrams after an unusually hard workout or a new a new workout program um, on, on your legs, because that's, as everyone knows, probably the worst of the muscle pain, then it won't do anything for you. But if you're only having 500 milligrams a day of vitamin C on a regular basis or less, and then you have one of these 4,000 milligram boluses of vitamin C, then uh, yeah, it's it's one of the most potent anti soreness supplements that you can you can take. Now, uh, similar to that, nah, not really similar to that. But the next one is magnesium, which I mention again as a an effective supplement if um, uh, if the context serves. So magnesium is given all sorts of. Um, hype and and uh, and all the rest, um, and people. A lot of athletes take it very very often. What I've found is, in an athlete, I encourage salting food liberally. I actually go through a quarter of a kilo of rock salt per week added to my food, and I drink without even really thinking about it around about five to six liters of water a day. So uh, that's that's just something I do and it's easy because of the salt and it's good because of the salt to to drink all of that water. It's not something that need to really think about. Um, salt helps balance out absolutely everything. Basically put too much in, your body will flush out the excess that it doesn't need. It drives the sodium pump and that pushes the potassium and the other electrolytes into the cells apparently because once again, I've never measured the sodium pump pumping calcium and potassium or anything anywhere. So I've got no idea and anyone who says that they do is just talking hearsay as well. These technical suppositions that we make about how stuff work really are immaterial and don't matter. So anyway, uh, in in any of the the athletes I train um, or myself where we're having lots of water, lots of salt every day, then the the occurrence of muscle cramps is extremely rare to to near non-existent. Um, And the uh, the ability of the muscles to pump and to function and everything else is never ever a problem. However, there are circumstances in which maybe we don't drink as much as we'd like during a day or it happens to be very, very hot and you've sweated excessively. If you've just moved house the day before and then you're going in to do a workout, which is probably just a bad idea all around. But there are there are situations where you may find yourself getting dehydrated etc and muscle cramping um, does does start um, it can even be with joint subluxations or just from not enough exercise recovery that that you can wind up having very very tight muscles um, that are more it would seem predisposed to injury and in these situations magnesium can be extremely effective for people. The one thing that I'd warn with magnesium supplementation though, so what I'm saying is I'm an advocate. It's it's something that I always have on hand, um, even though I very, very rarely ever need to use it. But when I need to use it, I need to use it. I make sure that I don't use it all of the time because I don't want to create the balance in my body whereby it requires it. And understanding that the body is an adaptive organism, 
when you supplement a particular ingredient, it's only going to provide an imbalance and therefore a doping kind of effect, which is what we positively want. It's only going to do that while it's a new addition to the body. Over usually not very long, the body just becomes dependent on it as that supplement is no longer an additive that's unbalancing the the physiology. It's just a normal thing that's always there. So for maximum bang for buck from magnesium, what I suggest is salt your food, drink lots of uh, not iodized um, table salt, by the way, I should say, just ground sea salt is is the, the best way to go. Um, drink copious quantities of, of water and uh have the sub, have the magnesium on hand if and when you need it. If you do get cramps, you know during uh, hamstring workouts and other muscles that are more predisposed to to getting that than others. And then the final supplement that I'll talk about that that I kind of rate, and I leave this to last because it kind of deserves to be last, and that's beta alanine. It's it's a very interesting supplement. Uh, the most profound effect that you will get from it is an extremely itchy face and the sensation of pins and needles all over your body. They can be really quite dramatically uncomfortable. So um, if you're looking for something that that feels like a doping effect, the cheapest thing you can do is niacin, which is one of the primary ingredients in all of the pre-workouts. doesn't do anything positive for you. I I'm sorry, some people think it does, I disagree. Um, but niacin also gives you a, a hot face and makes you feel like uh, uh, something is happening. Um, Beta-alanine, though, does seem, to, does seem to help lifters perform remarkably consistently and at their highest level. Now, this is something I say advisedly and with massive qualification. Um, there's so much more to exercise performance than whether you take a supplement or not, starting first with, is your is your program structured properly and are you doing it properly? And then followed by, are you sleeping and are you eating your diet and is it consistent, is it appropriate, and all of those sorts of things. But assuming all of that's in place, which is the preface I gave to this entire episode, assuming that's all in place, then beta-alanine is a nice tool that can be added to uh, the the pre-workout period that does seem to help some people with consistently performing at their best. Um, It's a fairly mm, obscure and intangible kind of benefit, but it's worth mentioning because I have had numerous athletes that I've worked with where there has been a uh, uh, an, an upward inflection of their rate of progress from the time they started supplementing beta-alanine um, to the time that they stopped doing it. It's not dramatic. It's, it's just a more consistent move-forward um, paradigm than without the beta-alanine. Um, it, it just means that they get their performances. Now, this is of most relevance training the way I believe in training, where you where you train with a real intent to beat your previous best ever performance at each workout. It's not high volume, but it is high stress, high pressure, high uh, performance stuff, and every single rep matters hugely because you're trying to get that just one extra kilo per week on what you've done before. 
in that context, beta-alanine can be a useful supplement. Um, and uh, again, it's kind of, it's always beneficial, but like everything, it wears off. So it's something to be used judiciously. And the best time I've found to do that is generally during a, a weight loss phase period where an athlete's trying to gradually lose fat weight off of the top of their muscle mass and at the same time maintain their performances or continue to gain. And in that context, it's 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 fantastic because that's the context under which performance can start to um, be a little bit less consistent and there can be down days with down energy with the, with the lowered food intake. On upward phases where the creatine helps with uh, not gaining the fat and and um, just keeping the weight gain to be very good quality weight, the beta alanine is less beneficial or useful because the performance the performances tend to be very consistent and good under that under that circumstance anyway. So anyway, that's that's my top seven or so. Uh, supplements. The only supplements that I would um, or or do tend to use these days, uh, actually, for what it's worth, I don't use beta alanine. Um, I don't use ALA. Uh, I do use, and I don't use creatine these days. But in the people that I work with, then those these are the supplements that I will use, and virtually at the at the exclusion of everything else. Um, I really do not rate most supplements particularly highly i rate getting your training right first your diet right second and then you can look at select items these select items that i've just talked about to help take everything to the next level or to to keep going in the uh in in the right direction with the best rate of return you can possibly get so i really hope that was helpful uh the next episode is going to be on the supplements i don't like and that'll probably have more cuss words and um and and drama in it so uh, i look forward to joining you for that all the best sophistication intelligence nuance damon hayhow never burdens an audience with such drudgery so delight at this droll little bald man Getting stroppy about everything. Only on DamonHayhow.com or anywhere that will have him.